Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ori. The federal oil and gas leasing process plays a critical role in deciding where and when oil and gas resources on public lands are developed, the revenue the government takes in, and the extent to which the local environment is protected. But as policy increasingly seeks to balance the need for affordable energy with the need to reduce carbon emissions and ensure fair value for taxpayers, the process is due for an update. Recognizing the need for reforms, President Joe Biden temporarily suspended oil and gas lease sales in January while his administration could review the program, a review that is still ongoing. On November 15th, EPIC hosted Interior Deputy Secretary Tommy Bodro for a conversation on the future of oil and gas drilling on federal lands, moderated by The Washington Post's Juliet Eilperin. Harris Public Policy's Ryan Kellogg, who provided recommendations to reform the process along with Booth scholar Tom Covert earlier this year, joined the conversation. Let's listen in. Good morning, and thank you for joining EPIC for the future of oil and gas on federal lands. My name is Jason Winnick, and I'm a second-year MPP student at the Harris School of Public Policy from Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm a co-president of the Harris Energy and Environmental Association, or HIA. HIA is a student organization that aims to connect students, alumni, and faculty to the people, institution, and ideas that are shaping the future of environmental and energy policy. It is my pleasure to introduce today's speakers. Tommy Bodro is the Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior. He returns to Interior after serving for nearly seven years at the department during the Obama administration, including as the first director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, acting assistant secretary for land and minerals management, and chief of staff to Secretary Sally Jewell. Deputy Secretary Baudreau has more than a decade of experience in energy development, environmental conservation, and tribal consultation. Ryan Kellogg is a professor and deputy dean for academic programs at the Harris School of Public Policy. Professor Kellogg's research bridges industrial organization energy economics and environmental policy, focusing on the economics of resource extraction and on the transportation sector. In ongoing work, he's studying the economics of private mineral leases for shale gas and the economics of fuel economy standards when future gasoline prices are uncertain. Today's conversation will be moderated by Juliet Alprin. Ms. Alprin is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist at the Washington Post, editing stories on climate and the environment. She is also the author of two books, Demon Fish, Travels Through the Hidden World of Sharks, and Fight Club Politics, How Partisanship is Poisoning the House of Representatives. Ms. Alprin has worked for the Post since 1998. She previously served as the Post White House Bureau Chief, National Environmental Reporter, and House of Representatives Correspondent. She will lead Deputy Secretary Bodro and Professor Kellogg in conversation before opening things up to your questions. Thank you all again for being with us today. Ms. Alprin, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. So we're here to talk about federal oil and gas leasing and, and the implications of the royalty program. Um, as you can tell, especially if you've read, for example, Professor Kellogg's work, you'll be aware that in 2019, 0.8 million barrels of oil and 9.1 million, uh, sorry, billion cubic feet of natural gas were produced per day on onshore federal land. So that's equal to 6% of total U.S. oil production and 8% of total U.S. natural gas production. At the same time, royalty rates have basically stayed unchanged when you're talking about federal land as opposed to offshore for roughly a century. So given that the Bureau of Land Management has a royalty rate that's significantly lower than royalty rates in, for example, Louisiana, New Mexico, North Dakota, and Texas, one of the questions is what should we do about that? 
And Brian, I thought you could start us off by talking about what one could do about the rates itself, and then Deputy Secretary Bodro could chime in. Great, and you know, thank, thank you, Julia, for, for for moderating this. I'm really excited about this about this conversation overall. Um, you know, and it, it touches, I think, on a really important and challenging question. Um, in a large part, just stemming from the fact that the Deputy Secretary Bodro and, and Secretary Holland have a really difficult job, and just in the sense of like think about what the Department of Interior is supposed to do um, in terms of like managing public lands. From a statutory perspective, they're supposed to accommodate a lot of diverse interests and multiple uses, you know, producing resources for by statute, sort of under the multiple use doctrine, they're supposed to be produce, managing public lands to produce resources for the benefit of the country. Making those mineral, minerals available to firms at some fair market value, while at the same time protecting the environment, which, you know, like, the deputy secretary can probably say it more precisely than I am, but like my thought on, on that is they're supposed to be doing a whole bunch of things at once, despite the fact that a bunch of those goals are in conflict with one another. Um, so, uh, you know, leasing oil and gas is a huge part of that. It's a huge part of the part of the portfolio. Um, and it's that leasing process that determines, you know, who's going to produce minerals, where they're going to produce them, and when they're going to produce them is like probably the single most important part of the whole oil and gas process on public lands. Um, and the royalty rate that you touched on has a large part to do with that. So um, for anyone in the audience not familiar with oil and gas royalties, basically the way it works um, for public lands, um, the Department of Interior imposes a one-eighth royalty on oil and gas that comes out of public lands. That means every dollar of oil and gas that comes out of the ground from federal lands Basically, 12.5% of that goes back to taxpayers. Some of that to the federal government, some of that to the, to the relevant state. Um, and one of the facts about federal oil and gas leases is that the royalty rates on onshore federal lands have, for a long, long time now, been substantially low, lower than benchmarks you get anywhere else in the country, whether it's private minerals, whether it's state minerals. Typical royalty rates nowadays, particularly in the shale era, are more in the order of 18% to as much as 25%, even get a few higher than that. Um, so our federal royalties are quite a bit lower than that. And essentially what that means is for federal lands, we're imposing a much different trade-off than basically other any other landowner in the country in terms of recovering less revenue for taxpayers, potentially um, while at the same time perhaps getting a little bit more in terms of production by virtue of, of that of the lowered royalty rate. Um, so it's it's a very different trade-off. Um, and you know. If you take the perspective that for federal lands, we should be sort of really emphasizing oil and gas production more, more than revenue, which I think is really hard to do these days if you're worried about climate, um, you can sort of accept that and say, okay. Um, I think increasingly, to sort of myself included, um, it's sort of not clear why we'd have such a big disconnect between what the feds do and everybody else. Excellent. Deputy Secretary Baudreau, wanna talk about how you're managing that disconnect? Yeah. Uh, thanks so much. And um, just off the top, thanks so much to uh, University of Chicago uh, and to the Institute for hosting this today. I, I did a um, similar, um, had a similar conversation with uh, EPIC uh, back in the beginning of 2018, sort of early in the Trump administration. Um, and it was on a campus and the students were in the auditorium. Uh, Mark Templeton led it, and it was extremely interactive and a ton of fun. And 
I am just really happy to be able to uh, join everyone today, albeit uh, remotely. Uh, to indulge me, indulge me, the one favorite thing I had from that event was uh, in advance, I got to wander around the law school and elsewhere. And, uh, of course, uh, hunted down the portrait of uh, President Obama in the law school. And my favorite thing about it was he had a name tag. So there was a time when Barack Obama uh, had to wear a name tag in events. Um, so you put your finger on it, Ryan. I, you know, there's a lot of history here. We can sort of delve into it to the extent that uh, it helps inform the discussion. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, and Juliet, as you said, you know, this royalty rate has been uh, largely static throughout the history of the program. A lot of the Interior Departments and the Bureau of Land Management's authorities are grounded in a bygone era. Um, a lot of these authorities originate uh, from the 70s, uh, and the, uh, for a host of reasons, the national policy uh, priority at the time, and that is reflected in these authorities, was to get it out of the ground, uh, to enhance domestic sources of uh, energy supply, uh, coal, oil, natural gas, and the machine that was set up, uh, again, originating out of this bygone era, was to do as Ryan and uh, your paper describes, which is uh, to put the thumb on the scale in favor of industry, in favor of production. Uh, I thought your chapter did a really nice job of kind of concisely summing up uh, the set of um, responsibilities, which you know I agree can be intention. Uh, around, you know, facilitating production that's in there, uh, environmental responsibility that's in there, uh, and fair return for the taxpayer is also in there. And the system, uh, as it was conceived and it's evolved over, you know, the last 40 plus years, has definitely favored um, the first. Uh, and um, uh, it creates a complex issue when uh, you're, purpose is to uh, reform that system and to unwind 40 years of administrative practice to align the programs with the realities facing both the United States and the world, uh, particularly around uh, climate. Uh, so that's a, that's a tall order. Uh, it's frankly a big part of the reason why uh, Secretary Holland came to the department, it's a big part of the reason why I came to the department is to tackle those issues. On royalty specifically, um, I'll just say something. <laughs> I don't want to preempt any questions from Juliet, but uh, sometimes I get asked about, you know, where is this, you know, oil and gas report <laughs> that was called for under uh, President Biden's executive order, day one executive order around tackling the climate crisis. Um, uh, the order itself actually calls for a review um, uh, that's sort of taken on a life of its own uh, in terms of, you know, the, the fabled report. I'll just say, um, uh, you know, originally, you know, <laughs> our timing around that was, uh, I think we said early summer, uh, we're on track for that. <laughs> so we'll another early summer. Um, but uh, I have 
something I can do instead now, which is basically point people to Ryan's paper. Um, so uh, nothing that is has been sort of reflected in our review of the oil and gas programs is a big secret. Um, it's essentially an exercise in documenting the misalignment between those programs and the realities of today and um, the deficiencies and failures of that program over time to uh, even sort of achieve the mandates that are in the statutes around, uh, in particular, fair return. It's been well documented through government accountability office reports, uh, IG investigations, uh, litigation, um, and uh, that is part of the exercise now is owning up all of that and putting the programs both onshore and offshore on a path that uh, fulfills those responsibilities to the American taxpayer around fair return for a shared resource that, you know, that they own. That's why they're entitled to royalties. This is a resource that the American people own, not uh, lessees. Um, and to also, as we do it, um, flip the script on the purpose and use of public lands away from, uh, you know, one dominated, uh, to use the rhetoric of the last administration by oil and gas interests, and one that instead is oriented as a baseline around uh, the public's interests, uh, including uh, local communities directly impacted by oil and gas activity on public land uh, and tribes as well. So uh, I read your paper, I really enjoyed reading your paper. Um, it's truly a roadmap and um, maybe from now on, like I said, when I get pestered about where the report is, I can say, oh, you basically get a sneak peek by looking at the paper. Yeah, yeah and, and I'll interject briefly and just sort of make yeah. clear that, you know, that, that my important co-author on that paper was Tom Covert, who's also here at the University of Chicago at Booth. He did a good job too. And, and I, <laughs> I, I look forward to the paper being footnoted when that report, which for those of, those of the folks on this webinar who subscribe to the Washington Post can recognize that it's sitting at the White House, that's where it is and that's where we reported it is. Uh, since the summer, uh, they can all look at how how uh, the University of Chicago's research informed the final recommendations, which we all look forward to coming out uh, in 2022. Uh, so moving on, uh, so let's let's dig into some of those details because again, obviously, um, this is about both you know some of the again some of the tensions and specific aspects of the program, and again, what would one do if you were going to change it? So one of the things I thought is really interesting question is how long do you have leases and what kind of impact does that have on the market? Um, so could could both of you talk about what's your your sense of that system besides just for example, ticking up a royalty rate and, you know, giving, for example, taxpayers more money, you know, for every barrel of oil or gas that's extracted, what, what's the opportunity to shift how long companies have claimed to a particular spot of federal land? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to take first crack at that. Um, you know, and, and this is another area where sort of like that, how long a company has from the lease start of the lease to when the lease terminates, if nothing happens, like, is a really big lever that's going to play a lot, play a pretty, pretty big role in determining is something going to happen or not. Um, and on onshore federal land, sort of current policy, and this is, my understanding is this is by 
statute um, is, ten, is a 10-year primary term on a lease. Um, so if you're a firm and you sign up for a lease onshore federal land, you get 10 years to develop something before you are then at risk of losing the lease where it goes back to be, goes back to BLM interior to be released to somebody else, or maybe you'd have to lease it again for a new, for a new upfront fee. Um, and that's actually a fairly long time relative to, again, sort of benchmarks from other parts of the U.S. And actually, like, like Texas in particular is a really useful comparison. So I think Texas often gets uh, caricaturized as a place that's super industry, it's super industry friendly, sort of lets industry do what it, do what it wants and all that. Um, but in the oil and gas space, Texas is actually quite a bit tougher on industry than, fed, than the federal government is when it comes to oil, when it comes to oil and gas. So, so how long, just, how long, how long do those leases last, for example? Those tend to be three to five years and at a higher royalty. Um, and these sort of three to five year terms are pretty sort of characteristic across the board for state lands, for private mineral interests. Most oil and gas in the U.S., particularly in, in the shale era, is on private land. Um, those private minerals tend to be leased or private oil and gas tends to be leased for, for three to five year terms. So in some sense, sort of like the deal you get if you're trying to produce on private land or most state land is you're going to get a higher royalty, 20 to 25 percent. And then you'll have a much shorter window to decide, okay, if I get a lease, am I actually going to do something with it or not? And it sort of avoids sort of being in a position where a firm might speculatively sort of acquire a, acquire a lease at a low royalty rate, at a low upfront bid of maybe $2 an acre, and then sort of have 10 years to putter around and tie up the lease, tie up tie up administrators at, at the Department of Interior with, with the lease and then decide after 10 years, eh, I'm not going to do anything with it anyway. And that's sort of 10 years where maybe somebody else could have done something with something else with the land, whether it's oil and gas or, or something, something else on the surface. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a case to be made for sort of kind of in the same way as we were talking about royalties before, sort of bringing leasing practice sort of more in line with what a lot of the other states, with a lot of what, the, what, a lot of what the other states are doing. Now, in the sort of um, piggyback off of that, a um, couple issues. One, uh, you captured it really well, um, including the point that the 10-year lease term is statutory. It's embedded in the Mineral Leasing Act, which creates uh, an, uh, an issue <laughs> that has to be solved for. Um, and I'll just add a little bit to sort of the problem. The problem isn't merely that uh, you know a lessee, an operator, acquires a lease. They may dally on it. They may develop it. They may not develop it. Maybe another operator would be better. Um, it goes again to that kind of fundamental question about what is the purpose of public lands. And so, one of the consequences of ten-year lease terms uh, in this regime of defaulting. Uh, in favor of the industry dictating uh, the multiple use mandate for public land is that, and you touched on it, uh, Ryan, is that those lands are not just locked up in terms of whether or not they'll ever come into production, but they're locked up from, uh, from other uses because you know, a lessee has a right. They have a right to access the mineral estate. They have uh, surface rights as well that go along with that. And so in a multiple use regime where you have to consider issues, including uh, cultural resources, uh, recreation, 
um, hunting and fishing, um, uh, conservation, wildlife conservation. Um, uh, that's a long time to tie up uh, land for one particular purpose. Uh, and so given that it is a statutory mandate um, that Congress does not um, uh, seem willing at this point to, to address, um, it has to be addressed through kind of other means. And I think fundamentally one approach uh, that as we were designing the reforms around this program is uh, that has to be considered when making decisions under the Mineral Leasing Act as to what areas are eligible and available for leasing in the first place. Um, and the secretary has uh, a lot of discretion under the Mineral Leasing Act to make that determination. And so that determination should be informed by the lasting consequences of uh, issuing a lease in the area. Uh, and in terms of you know, our existing authorities and ways that this program should be reimagined, the effect of the 10-year lease term on shore, um, I think is relevant to making determinations on what's available and eligible for lease at the outset. Great. And following up on that, uh, it's you know, particularly timely that today the Biden administration is announcing that it's going to propose a 20-year withdrawal from the areas within a 10-mile radius of the of Chaco Canyon and you know a hugely important tribal site as part of the summit that President Biden's convening today. Can you talk about that as kind of a case study in exactly the balancing act that you're talking about right now? And when and what are the real costs of doing that, as well as obviously the benefits of an area that's considered an incredibly important cultural and historic landscape? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, here we are, you know, coming off of, um, you know, COP uh, and uh, the convening in Scotland. And uh, as you said, Juliet, um, pivoting right from that to um, a major convening of Washington, D.C. by President Biden and Secretary Holland and the entire cabinet of tribal nations uh, and annual tribal nations summit, something that had um, never been convened during the, uh, the Trump administration. So it's been a while, uh, and it's really good to have tribal nations from all over the country uh, back at the table um, to talk about um, trust, uh, responsibilities, treaty rights, uh, and the relationship um, between the federal government and tribal governments. Um, uh, among the things that uh, the administration has announced today in connection with the kicking off of the Tribal Nation Summit is the withdrawal uh, um, from oil and gas uh, leasing and development within a 10-mile radius of uh, uh, of Chaco uh, National Historic Park, uh, which is a UNESCO site, among other, other things. The last administration, you know, um, <laughs> uh, couldn't seem to, to uh, come to the view of uh, of just leaving it alone. So kept kind of reproposing different uh, lease sales in the vicinity of Chaco. And so one of the tools available to um, to the secretary or to the president is to withdraw an area from um, mineral leasing. Uh, and that's what uh, is being done today with respect to the area around Chaco Canyon to essentially start a process to consider uh, and evaluate 
uh, implementing a 20-year withdrawal. Um, it's an important tool that uh, is, you know, within the toolbox of the secretary of withdrawal. withdrawal. Um, and again, it's something that I think um, uh, can be really effective, especially when protecting uh, sensitive and sacred areas like chocolate. Okay, um, I thought we could now pivot to orphaned wells, which is another uh, thing, another very important issue that's actually been, you know, gotten, I think, more discussion here in Washington in, you know, this year than it's had in quite a long time, and obviously also is a subject um, of uh, Ryan and Tom's paper. So, um, you know, clearly orphan wells pose both an environmental hazard uh, in terms of public health and greenhouse gas emissions. As of 2018, there were, I guess, uh, 56,600 documented orphan wells in the United States, although there are likely hundreds of thousands of additional undocumented orphan wells. Um, and they're being cleaned up at a you know fairly slow pace of something in the neighborhood of, I think, roughly, you know, 3,000 odd wells a year. Um, so assuming that there's a minimum cost of $24,000 per well, decommissioning uh, both these documented and undocumented wells would cost billions of dollars. Um, there is some money in uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package for it, I believe. So maybe we could talk a little about that, but um, uh, maybe we could start, Ryan, with you talking about, you know, again, what could be a policy change in terms of bonding requirements that could could impact that? And then we could switch over to what the government is actually doing about it right now and, and what could be done going forward. Yeah, I think uh, you, you really hit it on the head. Uh, I really don't remember a time prior to this year where discussions of orphaned wells or abandoned oil and gas wells was a major part of the conversation, but like state government, federal government, whatever. And all, all of a sudden this year, that seems to have radically changed I, for, for the good. It's, it's an urgent problem that needs a lot of work. Um, and part of it is yeah, my, in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which I believe is being signed today. There are several billion, billion dollars. I can't remember the exact amount for you know, properly plugging and remediating ab abandoned wells. Um, and this is a problem. This isn't just a federal lands problem. This is a problem on federal land, state land, and, and private land. And surely, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'd be shocked if it were the case otherwise, that the bulk of these wells are on private lands, just given how the fact that most wells in the US are on private lands. Some are undoubtedly federal lands too. And these are just a huge hazard in terms of local pollution. They leak methane, which is you know, a, ter a terrible greenhouse gas pollutant. So like, spending money and directing federal money at cleaning up these wells is a great investment. Um, just for the environmental aspects of it, it's also a great opportunity to employ sort of an oil and gas labor force that hasn't had as much work to do over the past couple of years. It's one of those sort of rare policy win-win-wins all around. Um, but it then sort of leaves this question of, all right, we have this terrible mess where we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of orphan wells throughout the United States. How do we prevent that from happening again? Um, you know, these orphan wells all happened in spite of the fact that pretty much every state and the federal government have regulations that say if you drill a well and produce from it, when you're done with the well and there's no more oil and gas left, you're supposed to properly plug it, fill it with cement, abandon it, remediate the site and all of that. That's not happening. Why isn't that happening? It's not happening because like, as wells get older, they tend to get sold off to sort of smaller and smaller and poorly capitalized oil and gas firms that then have a strong incentive to basically evaporate as an ongoing entity. 
um, go bankrupt, whatever the case may be, which then sort of leaves nobody left to pay the bills. So how do you prevent that? Sort of having a mandate that you clean up at the end of the day doesn't help that problem at all. And really the only way to deal with it is up front at the beginning when you decide to make the investment, not only do you have to pay to actually drill the well, you have to front up a bond that's actually big enough to cover the reclamation cost at the, at the end of the day. Um, and in the particular when we're talking about modern shale oil and gas wells, those reclamation costs can be big, tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, for really sophisticated wells. Um, and the problem is sort of modern day bonding requirements, both for the federal government and sort of state, state governments are sort of nowhere big enough to cover those reclamation costs. So for instance, since we're talking about, you know, I can pick on a lot of states, but since we're talking about the federal government, I'll pick on BLM. Um, you, under sort of the current rules, you, if you're an operator in a state on federal land, you can cover all of your wells with a $25,000 bond, no matter how many wells you drill. Wow. Um, and you're saying, and basically the best estimates are that it costs at least $24,000 per well to plug them at this point. Something like that. Exactly. For sort of a, yeah, for, you know, a modern day shale oil and gas well that's not super shallow. Okay. All right. What's the federal government doing about this? So a couple of things and to just kind of take them in reverse, um, because uh, uh, you're right, the Infrastructure Act does have about $4.67 billion uh, to be devoted to uh, work and well cleanup. Um, but the way Ryan described it is exactly right. Um, that in and of itself reflects, in my view, a regulatory failure. Um, you know, part and parcel of the set of responsibilities, especially on public lands, but you know, true under uh, state law regimes as well. Part of the responsibilities when you acquire a lease is supposed to be uh, to safely decommission uh, those operations once they, um, you know, run the course on their useful life. Decommissioning includes you know, taking down the surface structures. But it also includes ensuring that uh, the well is plugged and abandoned and left in a safe state, not only for you know concerns about pollution, but also um, you know, uh, methane release over time. Uh, and so there have been studies in recent years documenting the amount of um, uh, GHG emissions coming from uh, orphan wells. Uh, and so. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, both onshore and offshore, there's no question that the financial assurance regime, as it's currently implemented by the department, is, uh, is inadequate. Uh, and it is another example of the way the game has been uh, constructed with the industry's interests first. So the industry argument would be, you know, come on, uh, of course we have this obligation. Um, but you're really going to have this tie up millions and millions of dollars of capital uh, and bonding for this future obligation when, you know, that capital would be better put towards, you know, development and reporting people, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, the market takes over and these things change hands and they come go downstream and then we do uh, get to the point where, as, as you have shown us, um, uh, the taxpayers left holding the bag. Uh, and that is not the regime that uh, is contemplated <laughs> under the Mineral Leasing Act or OXLA. And so we're having 
uh, very focused conversation on exactly this issue now as part of the reform of the oil and gas programs going forward, both onshore and offshore, is how do we avoid the need for Congress to yet again pump down $5 billion um, to address uh, orphan wells that uh, not only are now um, in the taxpayer's lap, uh, but are contributing to uh, GHG uh, entering the atmosphere and, and their climate effects associated with it. So I'm proud to say that um, the administration has made orphan wells a priority. That's why uh, $5 billion uh, is coming to the department as part of uh, this program. The bulk of that um, addressing kind of the um, distribution of the problem that Ryan described. The bulk of that uh, will be sort of disseminated through grants uh, to states to address orphan wells that are not on public lands, but a big chunk of it is um, for public lands. Um, and you're absolutely right, a big component of this is um, designed around energy community revitalization. It's not lost on any of us, I hope. Uh, it's certainly not lost on the administration that uh, we are in a transition. Uh, the transition can cause uh, stress and dislocation in communities who, you know, through no fault of their own, have become uh, intertwined with uh, the oil and gas industry. Uh, again, part of the legacy that um, we're dealing with here is many, many communities in the states you now fund um, essential public services, uh, schools, uh, emergency response, et cetera, out of oil and gas revenues, uh, in addition to those, uh, the employment uh, uh, benefits and these uh, resource development states like, you know, like my home state in Mexico. And so attention needs to be given to that issue as we work through the transition and um, the orphan well program is, uh, is a stat at that as well. And just to clarify, and if you if you can't say this with precision, I understand. But so this money, right, as I understand it, so it's going to be grants to states, and then can states, you know, spend it on plugging any kinds of orphan wells or only the ones on either state or federal land? What like how how does that work given that there's this whole patchwork that we're doing? Yeah, so we have the um part of the mandate coming out of um, the bill that we have to stand up is the program for grant administration. Okay. Um, and uh, but the purpose of the money is uh, to address uh, abandoned legacy uh, orphan wells. And so, as we develop the architecture for the grant administration, uh, part of it is to, to focus and make sure that those funds are being delivered to the purpose here, which is to uh, hunt down and plug those wells. Got it. Um, and then I wanted to ask at least one more question before we open it up to questions from our audience, um, which is, you know, what I'm curious of, again, where are other, you know, ways in which, again, the federal government without, as you mentioned, there are certain statutory requirements and that it would take congressional action to change. So are there other areas where you see either of you that, you know, the administration could change the way we do federal oil and gas leasing, both both in terms of, again, as we're talking about, you know, addressing some of these priorities, but also maybe making certain things easier 
for industry to take advantage of, of, of these issues because partially part of what they argue, right, is that yes, we pay a lower royalty rate, but the requirements are so burdensome dealing with all this regulation, it actually is more costly to operate on federal land onshore. So maybe you could talk a little about, you know, what are other ways in which things could change that would, would work and, and produce more benefits overall? Yeah, uh, 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 just just really quick. Uh, this is what I think. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what the, what the deputy secretary has has to say. Um, you know, I think like there's a balance to be struck between you know we want to make sure you know one we're protecting protecting the environment um, and you know to delivering value for the taxpayer while letting while letting companies companies do what they do. Um, they, there are potentially ways to do that that sort of don't at the same time involve you know. Adding lots, lots, and lots, lots of bureaucracy. So, for example, in the current royalty regime, you know, put aside the fact that you know we had the conversation about what what royalty rate you set. Like, part of what sort of determines what what's the royalty you pay. Um, I think we talked about it earlier as a very simple. Okay, you take the oil and gas revenue you get and divide it by and sort of take one eighth of it, and that's what goes. Um, there's a whole complex process to determine what the value of oil and gas is. And can you deduct transportation? And can you deduct this? And can you deduct that? And what's the actual price you use? Um, and there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. And in some sense, the firm has lots of discretion. Um, that becomes sort of a that becomes a burdensome process both for the firms and it becomes a burdensome process for interior for interior um, to audit all of that. Because in, because the rules have become complex over the years, and I think you know there's you can you know there's probably sort of a chain of firms asking for different things over time. That's that sort of leads leads to that. Uh, but you can imagine sort of you know the trade that you know simplifies a lot of that. So like there are very well measured benchmark oil and gas prices like West Texas Intermediate and Oklahoma. Very good benchmark natural gas prices like Henry Hub, Henry Hub in Louisiana, and sort of simplify a lot of that re regime without making the royal royalties un unduly burdensome. Um, sort of, you know, it's sort of you know one way to sort of try and achieve. You know, we want to make sure taxpayers get fair fair market value, while at the same time not creating a bunch of administrative costs for both the firms and for the government on, on top of that at the same time. So uh, there are ways to do those sorts of things, but you know, implementing it requires its own work. Right. Yeah, and just to, to sort of piggyback off of that again, I think that's really well put on the uh, royalty side is uh, uh, the 12 and a half percent isn't the only issue about whether that rate is uh, sufficient. There's, uh, there's a whole regime around, you know, applicable deductions, et cetera, that, that um, can reduce that even further. Um, at the end of the Obama administration, we completed a rulemaking to um, reform that process that was undone during the Trump administration. And suffice it to say, we're going to be taking another crack at it. So that is a, uh, a really good area. The other things I flagged, you know, specifically in the leasing process, um, uh, part of uh, the burden, if you will, of uh, operating oil and gas leases on public lands is um, the litigation potential. Um, and so, um, you know, and again, you know, I've, I have a lot of experience in this area, both at the department and, um, and outside. Um, I will just say that the Interior Department 
um, does not do anybody any favors, including lessees, when corners are cut on environmental reviews, when the public isn't provided a clear picture of uh, the full range of impacts, including uh, social costs and greenhouse gas and climate impacts from leasing decisions. And so, uh, and, and when that happens, uh, lawsuits follow um, and adverse uh, rulings follow from those lawsuits and the leases get remanded and that contributes to years and years of delay in operators' ability to develop under their lease rights. And so um, because of inadequate NEPA work, environmental analysis under uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, as well as inadequate uh, consultation under Section 106 uh, with uh, tribes and other communities and inadequate consultation under the Endangered Species Act, we're going to have the courts return 5,000 leases uh, to the Interior Department uh, issued by the Bureau of Land Management. And so now we got to deal with those. Um, and so while I hear, you know, industry arguments on like, oh, you know, there's so many hoops to jump through and, you know, that in and of itself is a burden and justifies a lower royalty rate. I'll just say, you know, those hoops aren't the law. Um, and when agencies cut corners uh, uh, for political reasons or otherwise to, you know, uh, uh, expedite uh, development, it's counterproductive. Uh, it leads to a lot of anger uh, and hard feelings from communities that don't feel listened to. And it leads to uh, litigation that uh, blocks the development pieces. And so to get back to kind of your question, Julia, part of the reform here um, needs to not only address fiscal terms, uh, incredibly important, and, um, you know, that was a big part of uh, the focus of, uh, of Ryan's paper, um, but also the process itself. And so that means having, you know, better environmental reviews um, that uh, learn from litigation, but also directionally uh, are in alignment with uh, the overall policy priorities of the country, including uh, around climate. It means from the outset, reducing conflicts, um, uh, either with uh, wildlife habitat or cultural sites such as Chaco. Um, and again, flipping the script away from the default is we can lease there to is there a reason to lease there? Um, that will have the effect of uh, reducing conflict. And I think ultimately um, a lot of the issues that uh, block the ability of companies uh, to uh, develop their leases. Uh, and then finally, um, um, there does have to be uh, consideration. The administration has made this a priority, um, kind of writ large around environmental justice issues. And so, you know, the circle back into our conversation about uh, orphan wells and the impacts on communities that um, have borne the brunt of a legacy of fossil fuel development. Um, that has to be a factor in recent decisions going forward is, you know, the burdens that have already been placed on uh, communities uh, um, because of this uh, legacy. And in doing so, I do think that you come up with a leasing 
program that uh, is more aligned with the public's interest, reduces conflict, and uh, I think um, in a way ends up answering some of those concerns that maybe the industry is Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Ori.